The way we take care of ourselves is ever evolving. And what we know for sure is that our mind and spirit are linked to our physical body and that our wellness seems to extend into our communities and the planet we all share. It is very, very clear that wellness is interconnected. We love spending time with you to explore and practice the breakthroughs, the insights, and the passions of incredible people helping us all see the world in a whole new light. This is HealthGig. Our friend Mark Middleton from Growing Boulder introduced us to today's guest. Diane Corso is an inadvertent expert on eating disorders because she has one and living with it has been an endless struggle. The hardest part came when she was pregnant with triplets. It was a battle royale between Diane's maternal instincts and the madness that drove her to run 25 miles a day. In her quest to escape the madness, Diane has discovered there is no true finish line. All she can do is keep searching and applying the lessons learned along the way. Welcome, Diane. We're so happy you're here on Health Gig. Trisha and I, we're very excited to get your book and to read your book called The Uncomfortable Truth. And we think you're very brave to come on and talk about this very important topic of adult anorexia. So welcome to Health Gig. Yes, Diane, welcome. And as Dora said, we do think you're very brave and really courageous. To, to stand up and to talk about something people don't really like to talk about. That is for sure. It's a taboo subject, but one in which needs to be talked about. So I, I appreciate that you have me here today. I'm in good company and I appreciate it so much. Thank you. Good. So let's just start. We always like to start by having our guests tell us a little bit about themselves. Then we can move into why you wrote this book. I am 52 and a mother of three triplet boys, soon to be 13-year-olds. So That's incredible. <laughs> exactly. You could do a whole other book on that. Triplets. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> triplets. I'm happy that it's Mental Health Awareness Month because I feel like the topic that we're talking about today all stems from mental health challenges and my journey through this and my admittance towards it for so many years were under the rug and I kind of kept it secret until just a few years ago. I battled with obsessive compulsive disorder for many, many years, not really knowing what that was. But after many years of therapy, I realized that this all stems from that, from an early childhood of having some of those tendencies. And it just spiraled into adult eating disordered habits and then spiraled into eating disorder, obsessive compulsive exercise routines. And I just got through many, many years of hiding it. And then I couldn't hide it anymore when I realized that I wanted to start a family. And from that, with therapy, I was encouraged to talk about it and then journal about it and write a story about it. And then then that came into this book. And here I am today to speak more about it because I never was able to find a demographic in my age group that was dealing with this or wanted to admit it. And I would read countless books about the topic. And they were all younger people who were dealing with eating disorders. And I was so happy to hear that their story was at the end in recovery. But that wasn't my story. You know, I was still in this disorder, having habits that were secretive. And then I'm at an age group that no one talks about. So I kept it secret. And I never was able to find a group of people that would be able to relate to me. And so I decided to write my own book. And here I am today to talk about it. So you started and you identified this really early on? I mean, when you think back, how long ago was it that you 
realized that there was this OCD or this relationship with food that wasn't normal? For me, starting off when I was younger, never was an issue with food. And I think that's a real misconception is that obsessive compulsive disorder is not just tapping into one specific thing. It can have many different avenues. And when I say I started to have tendencies as a young kid, it was never anything identifiable. I would just do things like putting my outfits together the night before and making sure all of my toys were aligned and shutting the lights off a certain amount of times and never really thinking twice about it. I was a very organized and neat child. So that was something that was complimented. Throughout the years, that's just kind of kept spiraling into different parts of my world. And for me, food, exercise was never even a thought of being abnormal until my mid-20s, maybe even my late 20s, where I would start to exercise in a normal place and then I would take it a little further as my obsessive compulsive behaviors would do. I'm kind of an all or nothing person. So it would be exercising into over-exercising. And then that over-exercising turned into rituals of exercising to where at the end of my 20s, I was running 25 miles a day literally 25 miles a day and never going underneath that. And then my food habits would be normal food habits to let's tweak it a little bit and then let's do something a little bit less, a little more healthy. And then it would, let's sliver this down a little more to where I was now running 25 miles a day with barely any food, less than 500 calories a day, maybe. Wow. And once I start something, it has to be the same every day. Just like my OCD as a child, once I had the stuffed animals lined it up. It had to be like that. It had to be the same. Yes. Now it was much worse where it was exercise and food rituals the same every day to where it just, you don't even realize what you're doing. I was young and single and that was okay. It wasn't okay, but I wasn't interfering with anyone else's life. Until later on, and then it became a lot harder to hide. Wow. 25 miles, how long did that take you to do a day? Oh, forever, because I would have to get up. That means, you know, I'm still a person who has another life as I have to right. work and, and, you know, you have to fit it all in. So you have to get up super early to start that and then finish it off maybe at the end of the day. But there was no getting around not, not doing, doing 25 that. miles every single day. No. Wow. And that if that meant, you know, not having a social life, if that meant shaving off other parts of the day, that's what it took. And I never second guessed it. And sometimes people say, how come you just didn't stop? You know, and I kind of contributed to this just extremely loud noise in my head, a noise that just doesn't stop. And you don't disobey it and you don't second guess it because that's what my life was like. I'd never thought any different. And I always thought that that's the way it had to be for me. So the noise just was always overpowering the healthy voice in me. And before I know it, I wake up and I'm 52 years old with the noise, you know, and now I have tremendous amount of other stressors in my life. As we all know, as adults in your life, you have career, you have a family, you have marriage, you have children. This takes the back seat. So your path to adult anorexia includes obsessive compulsive disorder. Is that unique, do you think? Or as you've begun to understand about other people having your same issues, do you see similar paths or is every path unique? You know, this is my story to tell, so I wouldn't want to tell, yeah. speak on anyone else. But I think that 
obsessive compulsive disorder, and I want to say that this is diagnosed obsessive compulsive disorder. People float that word around a lot in their daily life. And that kind of ticks me off a little bit because they really don't want to have what I have, but they say, you know, I'm so obsessive about this, or, you know, I do this all the time. I think that for me, when the rituals in my young life were tapped out, though no longer served me, it just spiraled into the food and to the exercise because we live in a real weight obsessed culture. And back when I was in my late 20s, it was more, it wasn't social media, thank God, but it was magazines and television and the environment was able to hone in on me. And I was very vulnerable for that. And I think that that's why I took the avenue of food and exercise to use the obsessive compulsive in that direction. It's real sneaky and it gets in there. And like I said, the noise just overpowers everything. So the diagnosis that you have is OCD, and then it shows up in this way now. So it's almost OCD and then a symptom of. Absolutely. And then I would categorize myself as anorexic and then overexercise. There's so many different parts to eating disorders that people have, but that would definitely be mine, overexercising and not eating, which is not a good combo. I saw a statistic as I was doing a little research, and it was a five-year-old statistic, but it said that 13% of women over the age of 50 were found to have an eating disorder. Do you think that's on the rise, or does that sound accurate to you? It sounds accurate, but I think it's on the rise as well. I think that, um, as I said earlier, I just don't think this is a very talked about demographic for women in our 40s, 50s, 60s who have a whole different life of stressors that an eating disorder likes. And I think that we have a lot of things going on in our lives and the thing that we feel like we can control, which is a huge part of an eating disorder is having control or that false sense of safety and comfort is our food and our exercise. And not only that, but our environment condones it and thinks it's the way to be. So we are just overlooked. And then we have a whole nother set of health problems because we are older and we have families and it's just a life that goes under the radar. You know, it's interesting because I think about Dora and I are both about 10 years older than you. So we're early 60, 62. You know, I was thinking about this when Dora and I were talking about your book and we were thinking, you know, when we were all growing up, it was the diet culture, right? And I think you were part of the diet culture. Now it does seem like there's less, at least there's an awareness now that that's a diet culture that was dangerous. It was kind of bizarre in the sense that you know, we were all not eating fat, you know, enemies, cookies, carbs, carbs fat, all that yeah. kind of stuff. Do you think it's changing for the young people or do you think it's got a long way to go still? I mean, I'm happy that I can sit here and speak freely about it and I'm happy that people discuss it. I just don't think that it's enough. I appreciate that you know, we have a sort of culture now that recognizes people in this predicament, but also the body positivity is beautiful and wonderful. I just don't feel like we are going far enough as far as really helping those who need help. You look at social media and it's all over the place. Thinness is in. Yet we can talk about, uh, you know, eating disorders, but that's not them. That's thinness. Let's keep going down that track. It's just, I feel like we have a long way to go, but yes, I think we can move forward quicker to help us. You said that it led down the path of not such great things. So do you have other health issues that came as a result of all of this? Not yet, but 
there's always time. I mean, for me, my biggest problems when I was in my real deepest, darkest moments of it was breaking bones. Like I said, the 25 miles a day, it's, you know, your body's not going to want to have that. And I had a lot of fractures and broken bones that when I tell you that if I had a fracture, I would walk and run on it until I could not anymore. Not saying anything to anybody, limping around, wearing a boot, still trying to get my exercise in and just basically ignoring it. That definitely was a problem. I have severe anemia where I had to have several blood transfusions throughout the course of my early 30s. Another problem that I feel like we really need to work on is when we go to our doctors. For instance, if I go to a doctor and I have a fractured tibia and they ask me about my health and my exercise and I'm not going to tell them what I do, they're not going to ask, oh, well, you must run a lot. You certainly have the figure of a marathon runner. Good for you. (laughs) And I'm like, for somebody who's healthy, that might be a compliment. But for me, it's like, see, I have to stay in this disorder. I have to keep going. And that's what I would do. So I feel like in that aspect, a lot of people need to ask more questions about people's health. I know a lot of this contributed to my fertility issues once I wanted to start a family. Yes. Absolutely. I wanted to ask you about that. When you're in the disease and you're pregnant, how did all that go for you? Well, from the get-go, I knew that I wanted to start a family, that I would have to have medical help because I had already stopped having a menstrual cycle for at least 10 years. So I knew that that was going to be a problem. And do you know that not one fertility doctor, God bless them, asked me about having an eating disorder? Wow. (laughs) You know, I had blood work done. I told them I hadn't had a menstrual cycle. I looked the part for sure. I was really frail. We'll get you pregnant. We got the tools for it. And so again, it fed into my OCD of, look, you can't stop now because nobody is recognizing what you have. So keep going. I'm so grateful for fertility doctors and medicine because it got to where I am today. It is a two-edged sword. It kind of stinks that they didn't help me out earlier and help me get healthier. But would I have listened? I don't know. Probably not. I did go through fertility treatments right away when I wanted to start a family, and I did suffer miscarriages. When I did, they said, you know, maybe you should just lay off running or you could try this in your diet, but we'll get you pregnant. We'll keep you going. One of the most shameful parts of my disorder in trying to get pregnant was the secrecy that I had. I had a desperate want as an early child to be a mother, and that's really what I wanted to do with my life. Yet when it came time to do it and I would get pregnant, that noise I talked about earlier was battling what I should have done to become pregnant and stay pregnant. I'd struggled with that during three miscarriages, and they were all around the same time of eight weeks or so I would miscarry because I just didn't have anything to sustain a pregnancy. Every time I just kept going, it'll happen, it'll happen, I'll just keep going. And then it did happen, but I struggled from day one. Were family and friends aware of what you were going through, or is it just they thought this was you? The start of it, of course, like anybody, it started where I was just a dedicated runner. I was very good with my diet and I had a lot of restrictions, but they were healthy ones and everybody kind of looked up to it. That turned into, wait a minute, she's looking really thin now. Maybe we should say something. And then if they would say the slightest things, I could definitely find a way to take the conversation somewhere else and it would never really come up. I come from a family that doesn't really take confrontation well. So a lot of things were just put on the side. Look, I have great skills at hiding right, right. what I eat, what I don't eat. <laughs> sure. I'm not here to blame anybody. I mean, I was part of it too. As I got older and then I was trying to have children, that's when people started to say, well, look, 
there might be an issue. My family did sit me down in an intervention style after I had my triplets because it didn't stop after my kids were born. It got worse. That didn't go over well because my eating disorder noise was very loud. You can't blame the outside world for it, but there are different ways that people can approach someone with an eating disorder that might help them to respond better. That's what I wanted to ask you. What's helpful? What can be helpful? I can tell you what's not helpful. Yeah. They're all trying to talk to you out of love and concern, and that I understand now. But when you're in the middle of living this life and you hear nothing else but a disordered eating, an ed voice in your head, and someone comes to you and says, look, you know, I think you need to change this. I think you need to do this. We are very paranoid people. And all we hear is they're trying to take you down. They're trying to take this away from you. And this is your comfort and your safety. Don't let them do it. Just nod your head and keep going. If someone were to say to me, the old classic, why don't you just eat? Why don't you just do that? I would think to myself, wow, really? You know, <laughs> Just eating? If it was that easy, I would do it. But you're not in that headspace to say those kind of things when you're in an eating disorder world. If it were that easy to just eat, we would. I think that people who try to come at you with sharing their own stories of what it's like and what their battle was or what they have as far as eating, that's not going to help either. We just don't hear you. And if you are just patient with us and you are tender with your words, eventually we will, but it's real tough. So it's not easy for family members or friends to get in there. And for me, I'd like to say that my disorder didn't come about until my mid-20s, right? So I was out of that bracket of being home with my parents or home with family that could say, we're doing something about this. You are going to treatment or whatever it is that we need to find for you because you're a minor. So I was on my own. I was living on my own. I was making money and I had a job. So nobody could really come at me and tell me that I had to have help. That's why I want to talk so strongly about midlife and that we kind of are people that go under the radar with this. Can you talk about what kind of help is available for midlife adult anorexia? Is it inpatient, outpatient? What can you recommend or what was helpful to you? I've never been to treatment or inpatient. And as much as my therapist encouraged me, I never did that because I had already had my children and I did not want to leave my kids. Now, I think that's made my recovery a lot longer than maybe it could have been. So I don't know how to speak on treatment, but I do know that there are wonderful treatments out there for inpatient for people of all ages. And I do feel like they are starting to tap into the midlife category a lot more. I started having just personal therapy about 15 years ago, right before my boys were born. And I still see my therapist today, who is my angel. And I think that anybody that can talk periodically with somebody or weekly is a very important thing. I did also see a dietitian and a nutritionist. She's also an angel. She puts up with me a lot through all of my, you know, okay, I'll do that and my lies about it. But I think that for me, that avenue is really important. Accepting it, I guess I would say that when you are someone who is in the midst of their adult life, accepting it and trying to make changes. I make really small changes daily. And for a long time, I was ashamed that I didn't just have a day with an aha moment that I woke up and recovered and felt very shameful to think, you know, look at all that I have. I've lived a life that's wonderful. I've made mistakes in this disorder that have tarnished relationships and friendships, but I have the family that I want. Why can't you just snap out of it? For so long, I felt that way. And I felt like I shouldn't talk about it because I hadn't snapped out of it. But 
now looking back, I'm so grateful that I can sit here and tell you that the small changes I make are really big for me. And while I'm not in recovery and there's no bow tied end of the present here to tell you that I'm in recovery, I'm okay with that. I think that I'm making positive changes and to be able to talk to you about this or just say some of the things that I've done in my past, it's really freeing. I'm not giving up on myself and I really want to make sure that other people can understand just because we're in our mature years (laughs) doesn't mean that we have to give up or that we have to not try as hard. So when we talk about recovery is what you say is that's when people are in recovery. So they've made it through, right? Yeah. I guess that's possible. Or do you think you go in recovery and how often are relapses or how does that go? I don't know. I'm not in it. When you say you're not in recovery, does that mean what? What does that mean? That means that I still, to this day, hold on to some of my tendencies of eating disordered habits and exercise and such. So I haven't fully left that life okay. yet, Okay. but I have certainly made different choices in not doing some of the behaviors I used to, for sure. And that's what I mean by the small, small moments. moments that I can look back and say, this worked for me, right. it doesn't work anymore, and I feel so much better about that. It's interesting. So you're making small steps. So the language of recovery or relapse don't really matter right now because you're on a trajectory, right? You're going a certain way. It's my pace. I mean, could I do more? Probably, but this is where I am right now and accepting it is part of my recovery, so to speak. You know, sometimes I think maybe I just shouldn't use that word anymore, recovery. Maybe I should just relax and just do what I did today and keep going. Like when this is over, I'm going to be really proud of myself that I was sitting here talking about this, you know, and I'm going to be able to go home and tell my boys because they know I'm doing this, that look what I did today and look what I talked about. And does that make it fully recovered? No, but I feel really good and proud of myself for doing it. And how are your boys? So they're full on know about what you work on and they are. And I I told them about my book when it came out and they were my biggest (laughs) fans from the start and they're turning 13 in a couple of weeks. So they've lived through this. So it's not like a huge surprise, but they can only know or hold as much information about this very foreign topic as it is to them. But I have to say that telling them about it, speaking about it on a daily basis and recognizing it is the best therapy for yeah. me because they're kids. They're just so like inquisitive. They're non-judgmental, And to be able to sit there and talk about all sorts of things about a disorder and OCD has opened up so much conversation between them and me that you have no idea that their own feelings about certain things. And they're like, look what she can do. I'm going to talk about some stuff myself. So it's been a real blessing. Your book came out in 2022. Have you had people reach out to you who are going through the same thing you're going through because they've read your book? I have. It's been really wonderful. It was super scary to push publish when I did it, you know, like when it went out and then just was like out into the universe. I was really apprehensive about it for so long. And then once I did and I got people emailing and saying, I'm in the same boat. I've lived through this. I'm currently a certain amount of years old and I've lived with the disordered eating pattern for well over 20 years. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for bringing attention to this demographic. And for that, I'm so grateful. I wrote it for myself. I wrote it for my children and my family, but if I could help one person who is in my predicament, who I couldn't find when I was reading all the books about eating disorders and anorexia and obsessive compulsive, my job is done. 
I'm not here to make promotion like, you know, this is the best thing ever for making tons of money off of a book. That is not what I intend to do. If I could just find a small group of people that are like me and that are going through it and that can relate to it and feel comfortable talking about it, that's good enough for me. And I have, and it's really been wonderful. Again, the difference between the OCD versus the anorexia and what we're learning from you is that it's really OCD and it's manifesting as anorexia. So what drives you, that voice, that loud voice, what is it? Is it saying to you, I have to do this repeatedly? It's, this is what I need to do. Or is it, I want to be extra thin because I need to be extra thin? Is that the voice? Or or is it fear, some kind of fear? Well, I'm sure it's some sort of fear that I haven't really figured out from what yet. I get that question a lot. Like, is it all about appearance? Yeah, yeah. And perhaps way in the beginning, it had something to do with appearance. But if I were to tell you anything, it is nothing about my appearance today. I would much rather not be what I am physically today if I could get rid of the voices. So when you say, what is the voice like? I don't know any different. I feel like when someone says, let's be back to your old self, it's been so long. I don't know what that is. You don't know what that is. I don't know what that voice, that healthy voice is. Now, I hear it a lot more than I used to. And I try and knock down the noise a little bit more here and there. But you know, it's still there. And so I don't know any different, but it's not physical, has nothing to do with vanity for me or appearance. At this point, it is mere survival. Was there a time when you identified that your voice wasn't healthy? I mean, were you going around with that voice, not even aware that it wasn't a healthy voice? For many years, it was not even anything other than just my voice. That was just the way I lived my life. And then as I got progressively thin looking in my appearance was definitely something of an unhealthy state. You start to hear people talk, you know, strangers and even people that you know, like giving you the side eye and looking at you differently. And you want to ignore it and you feel super ashamed and embarrassed. And it's a feeling of embarrassment, but shouting to them, I don't know what to do to get out of it. If you only knew I don't like the way I look, but I can't. So please don't judge me. I would definitely start to hear when I was at my thinnest, but I didn't do anything about it. I was super scared, like you said earlier, Dora, about being a fear of something. I don't know what that fear is, but it got me good and it tapped in and it takes a hold of you. And when they say that this is mental health, anorexia is the number one mental health issue that we have. And no one really wants to hear that, but it is the number one. And it's the deadliest. It kills us. Why can't we talk about that? I don't know. You know, I, I didn't know that, but it is the number one yeah. mental And the deadliest, you know, because of all the different things that can happen to our bodies with years of this happening and being cruel to our bodies, bones, heart, failure to everything. So yeah, it's not pretty. It's not pretty. And would you call it chronic? It sounds like in your case, it's almost a chronic disease. For sure. I mean, it's been over 35 years. So <laughs> chronic, yeah, for sure. Like I said earlier, I've made small advances in getting better, but I would like to be able to say one day that I'm not chronic anymore, but maybe I won't be. It is just too tough of something to get out of. I would like to be able to tap into those feelings of false senses of security and comfort that an eating disorder brings. It definitely woos you and manipulates you into thinking, this is what you need to feel better. The thoughts that go on in my head are really loud. Like throughout this interview or throughout my day, the thoughts are still there. Like we're going to do this, but then later on, you're going to be able to get back into that habit. Don't worry. Don't you feel comfortable knowing that, that you're, you have safety of me later. That's the kind of voices that you hear 
all day, every day. You know, it's so interesting, Diane, that you talk like this, because I know some of the folks that I know that have had this issue, one of the terms that they used often was, that was my eating disorder speaking to you. And now that you say this, I get it now. Like that was the eating disorder. It's there. It is making me do these things. And then those that are at least feeling as though they've made steps into recovery will look back and say, you know, geez, that was that voice. Thank you for that distinction. I recognize that it's the voice. It's softened a little bit, but I still have it. So one day I hope to not be able to hear that voice in my head and have something else to lean on, but it takes over. You're incredibly brave, incredibly brave. And to be 52 and to have come this far in making those steps is remarkable. I mean, the strength that you have is is incredible. I don't see myself as brave though. I, I have to tell you, when I think about it, if I really were to sit and think about it, which I don't like to do, to say that, you know, you're 52 and you're sitting here talking about a secret that you've had for over 35 years. Don't you think that's enough to get out of it? I start to second guess myself like, wow, you know, isn't this enough to get out of it? I mean, you're speaking on this platform. I mean, come on, wake up. But I, it hasn't happened yet. So to me, I feel like I'm not as brave as maybe I could be, but I'm working on it. And I feel like I can finally say that other parts of my life, I do really well. You know, I can manage really well in other parts of my life and I will one day manage this better. Just not yet. Yes, but you're taking the steps. I hope so. Yes. Yes. Diane, is there anything else that we should ask that we haven't talked about that would be important that we touch on? Just the main message of let's get out there and talk about midlife anorexia and midlife disordered eating patterns and the fact that it's mental health related. I want people to know that it's not a choice to do what I do or start what I started. We're not here to do this because we want attention from anybody. We're in a crisis. We're in a real tough spot. And if people could just recognize that, maybe we could progress a little bit more and try and help each other. So that's why I wrote the book. That's why I talk about it freely with my children. And that's why I hope that with all of this each and every day, like this is a moment that I'm going to remember, like I said earlier, that's one moment further into me getting better. So I can't thank you enough for allowing me to talk about it with you. And know that you're going to help so many people. Well, thank you. With your book. And I hope people who have this in their world will read The Uncomfortable Truth by Diane Corso, because I know it's going to help. So thank you thank for- you being with us and thank you for being the wonderful person you are. We just loved having you. Well, I appreciate it very, very much. Thank you so much to the both of you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. Precision medicine is a genetics-based approach to personalized care informed by biometrics, genomics, and lifestyle factors. Dr. Dawson, founder, CEO of Wild Health, can bring you incredible recommendations for diet, exercise, sleep, mental health, disease risk reduction, and more based on your personal health story. All of you are invited to get to know Matt Dawson better beside the ocean and over some incredible meals at Gasparilla in November. Call for the Foundations of Wellness Experience Reservations at 877-764-1420 or the-gasparilla-in.com.